Welcome to BAFTA's Heritage Podcast, featuring monthly conversations on films, TV programs and games recognized by the Academy since 1947. Find out more about how BAFTA has been celebrating and inspiring creative excellence at BAFTA.org forward slash heritage. Um, I would like to welcome Rick Edwards, Dr. Michael Brooks, and Andrew Whitehurst. So, we'll start off with Rick Edwards selects Ex Machina. Um, Why Ex Machina? Um, So, we, uh, so Michael and I do a, a podcast where we talk about the science in films. Um, and from the first time that we talked about doing that, um, Ex Machina came up, and it's the film that we've talked about most consistently um, over the last yeah. two years, um, and also have argued about most, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, and, and also, we love it, um, so that's why, because I think it explores an area that we're both fascinated by and also don't quite understand, which in fairness, I mean, no one quite understands it, which is sort of the yeah, point. Yeah, um, it's and not so just it's, us. No, <laughs> we don't think so. Um, it's very fertile, fertile territory. And it's just, I, I love the film. I love the film. I think it's extraordinary. And when you say argue, what are the main points of contention? Well, the, the classic is, um, is she conscious or not, isn't it? And, um, Andrew, is she? <laughs> um, just See, this, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I literally asked him this 30 seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> and he's still thinking. Well, for, well, first of all, we have to agree what we think conscious yes. is, which we're never going to. Nope. Um, there is one, there's one moment in the film where it's right towards the end where Ava is out on her own and she's just about to leave the house and she's walking through the living room and she turns around and she smiles. To me, that's the most clear example that she, and I'm using a gendered term that I don't think actually necessarily applies to whatever this entity is, but for reasons of brevity, let's say she. Um, that's the clearest thing, uh, 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 piece of behavior that Ava exhibits that makes me think that she is conscious. She's feeling something. Exactly. Mm. Is, and there's is, no one else there yeah. for it to be a, a response to its for her and her alone. Yeah. And did Alex Garland write that into the script and was that his perception? As far as I know, yeah. And in terms of working with Alex, when you first got the script, how much of Ava was laid out on the page for you and how much of it was built? Um, in terms of her uh, dialogue, it's the, the first version of the screenplay I read is pretty much indistinguishable from what's on screen, it, uh, you know, it, it was a it's a very low budget film. Um, we only had a six week shoot, so if you when you're working like that, you're doing sort of fifteen to twenty five setups a day. So you formulate the plan and you execute the plan. That's the way you get it done. So there wasn't any opportunity for changing things or you know mucking about with trying different lines of dialogue. It's like right, we just the only way we're going to get this done is we just shoot the screenplay. Um, so verbally exactly as you see. Visually, um, when Alex came to us, he'd been working with a, a concept artist, comic book artist called Jock, and uh, Jock had done some 
uh, I guess more sort of mood pieces rather than specific pieces of design. Um, but they were our jumping off point, and then we started to design uh, in more specific detail what she would look like. And that evolved over the course of pre-production um, based on limitations of what we were going to try and do with costume to keep costs down, um, and what we were going to try to do with visual effects to make it look a certain way, and how we were going to marry those two together. And that was just a continual series of conversations between Alex and us and uh, Sammy Sheldon Diffa who's the costume designer and Tristan who did all the prosthetics and we just kept talking and designing and designing and designing until we ended up with what you see now. And um, what you see here, I don't think if you'd asked me when I first read the screenplay to draw Ava, I don't think that's what I would have drawn. But it's, that's the beauty of, of filmmaking is it's a collaborative process where you know, Ava is an emergent property of the efforts of everybody who was working on it. So, you know, there isn't a creator of Ava, there are a whole bunch of creators of Ava. And um, Rick and Mike, what were your first perceptions when you saw her as a robot? Well, you know, we've been saying her, but none, perhaps, would get into the gender issue in a little while. But then what were the perceptions of her, your first perceptions, and what did you have um, kind of... Was it the first time you'd seen kind of representation of AI in this way? Yeah, I think um, it's certainly the most interesting representation I've seen of, uh, of AI. Um, I think one really important feature of intelligence that sometimes maybe gets overlooked is the kind of embodied aspect mm. of it. Mm. So it's all very well having um, a, a machine, a box, that performs these incredible tasks at incredible speed and is able to process all of this information, spot patterns that we wouldn't be able to and so on. But actually the, the kind of physically having a body with which you can interact with the world, understanding your body, I think is a, is a really key element of it and I hadn't seen it done yeah. In, yeah. in such a sort of nuanced and, and also kind of explicit way yeah. um, as, as in Ex Machina. Yeah, and I think the other thing was that it, what it did immediately was take AI research on from you know this just basic Turing test that everybody's mm -hmm. talked about for mm -hmm. you know sort of fifty years as being oh you know the computer's hidden and, and you can't see it. and wouldn't it be interesting to be able to tell if we could see to, to see whether it's a computer or not and it just sort of swept that aside really beautifully mm -hmm. and and you know, you're presented with something you know is a machine and when you're watching it you're still thinking, okay, it's not just a machine, maybe, or is it? So, so you're all participating in the Turing test, effectively, while you're watching this film. And, you know, and obviously, um, Caleb is participating as well, and you're watching him. Mm. But you have this kind of sense that you're engaged in, almost in a, you know, a really important conversation uh, you know, that, we, that we actually need to have sort of in, the, in the bigger world as well. So, so I, I found that really exciting. It, it sort of avoided all the tropes of, of AI-based films, you know, but actually just went straight for the, you know, this is what's coming. Um, and actually, you know, we're, we've moved on from that conversation you thought we were having. The Turing test is kind of, in a way, slipped in through the back door through the presence of Kyoko. Yeah. Sometimes that's the actual Turing test. Yes. In terms yeah. of the film, not yeah. of Ava, perhaps. 
and it has all these lovely moments. So, so you, you know, it's, it's funny because watching it now for the, I don't know how many time I've watched it, but I was watching thing, watching Kyoko much more. I was saying, Andrew, mm -hmm. yes, she's really, to me now when I'm watching the film, she's the really interesting character because mm -hmm. I'm trying to sort of see what I see in her as well and you know, where her attention is while things are going on. You know, she's chopping vegetables and then you mm -hmm. see her just staring out the window. And I, mm -hmm. you know, it's those little things, you know, really make you sort of think, you know, what will happen when we have, if, if when we have machines that we start to wonder about their inner feelings. Well, there's a comparison, I don't know if that's intentional again, at the end um, with Ava and Kyoko. It's almost like Ava is the one that is conscious because she is the one that's leading. Essentially, she's whispering in here. What, what she's whispering, we don't know, but essentially she's whispering perhaps a command or an order or I, perhaps not. I, I don't read it that way. I mean, I think sort of one of the things that's sort of interesting just from a sort of filmmaking point of view about um, Kyoko, so Sonoya Mizuno plays Kyoko and she's a, a ballerina. And it's one of the things that's most interesting about working with people who are astonishingly physically self-aware mm. is the ability that they have to produce the sort of the subtlest cues in terms of movement that mm. really key you into feeling something. And I, to me, that's one of the things about Kyoko. She doesn't say anything, but... To me, I don't feel that she is any less of a candidate for being conscious mm. than Ava is, mm. which I think is an interesting thing in as much as we, particularly with the Turing test, we're so focused on you know, language as being this way of determining whether, as in spoken language or written language, as being this way of determining whether something's conscious or not, and yet you have this other entity that does not say a word, and I am far from convinced that Kyoko is any less conscious than Ava is. In terms of movement, in terms of creating movement with uh, Alicia, and um, how was what were the challenges in kind of terms of creating that movement and the fluidity, and were there challenges? It's the that it was the hardest technical problem on the entire film. Um, the you, you might think that um, extremes of movement would be harder to copy, but actually it's the the hardest thing to do is where you have which is what we, we had with Ex Machina, where we had um, areas of Alicia that we were keeping, like the face and the hands and the feet. Uh, and then we had to stick our CG to that perfectly. And the hardest thing to do is when someone's standing still, because no one is ever actually motionless. And the hardest thing is over a long shot, just these tiny, subtle movements and making sure that they are perfectly aligned frame to frame to frame to frame. And essentially, it's brute force over ignorance. It's a lot of really good artists working for months to get that trying and refining and refining. There's the, the longest shot in the film is there's a shot where um, Ava's holding out the drawing to Caleb and it's 1,620 frames long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it, one artist was tracking that for three months. Just the, and it's like, and she's just literally holding it like that for a while, talking a bit, and then she puts it down, gets up and walks out of the room. That was three months of tracking it, um, just to get the, move, the movement copied. So that was definitely the hardest thing on the whole movie. Um, we do have roving mics in the audience, so if anyone does have a question, please put your hand up and we'll get a mic to you. Don't be shy. <coughs> Very shy. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Takes one. Hi there. Hello. Um, great choice, by the way. So Thank I you. was just 
going to ask, because you're talking about the Turing test, and I listened to some interviews with Alex Garland where he talks about this, so I haven't obviously formulated a question in a vacuum. But Kyoko, you talked about being a really interesting character. Um, when Caleb essentially ignores her for the film, and then when he sees that she's a robot, effectively he is horrified and we as the audience are horrified. Um, how interesting do you think it is that she's treated appallingly for the whole film as a woman, and then as soon as she's a robot, it's so much worse to him that she's been treated like that. It's like, well, this would have been absolutely fine, but my God, she's a robot. Now it makes that even worse. I mean, was that intentional? I mean, did Alex deliberately put that in there, or is that yeah, just I mean, a different Yeah, I mean, Ex Machina is as much as anything about how we as a society treat women, particularly, you know, women in their 20s. That it's, it is a film about two different sorts of horrible misogyny, as much mm. as it is about uh, um, questions of consciousness. So, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely deliberate. And there's a conversation about it, kind of, really being what the, con the conscious decision to make her mm. female and yep. to give, you know, her sensory yep. things. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there's a really interesting point to be made sort of about real world AI here mm. because if you buy the Amazon Echo for instance which is your kind of digital assistant who will you know help you run your home um, the only option you have as a gender is female you can you can call her Alexa you, there's no male name that you can opt to call her and I've talked to various AI researchers who said they're quite worried about this kind of thing um, partly because also um, I have one in my home at the moment, although I think I'm going to get rid of it. And my children actually talk to it in quite a rude way. Mm. And uh, I think it kind of encourages this. So this interaction that we're having with, with machines and AI as you know, AI powers Alexa um, and is sort of teaching us a certain way of interacting with these machines and with these algorithms that actually maybe we need to start thinking about right now because you know, the ultimate end of that is you know, what you see in, in the film. And if these things are female, then that sort of creates another layer of problems that you have. And there's a reason, um, or some AI researchers will tell you there's a reason why it's a female voice, um, because that's traditionally what they prefer to use. So the Eurofighter Typhoon's um, Alexa in the cockpit, as it were, is female, because studies show that actually a, a pilot will react to commands from a female voice slightly more quickly than it will from, uh, from a, a male voice. And partly that's to do with the sort of low frequency rumbles in the cockpit, so a female voice is slightly above that and easier to hear. But um, I think that that's not an excuse for Alexa because my, you know, my kitchen doesn't have those low frequency rumbles. <laughs> and, and, uh, and yet Amazon has made this choice. So with advancements like the Alexa, and that, are we right to be slightly fearful, skeptical of how AI can be used in a domestic environment? the way it's moving? I don't know about fearful, necessarily. I think it's more about caution, isn't it? Just sort of being aware of, of what is happening. And I think, you know, the, the, the nub of it at the moment is that we're giving up an awful lot of data, um, which is, you know, e explicitly mentioned in, in the film where, um, where Nathan says, oh, yeah, I just hacked all of the phones in the world and I extracted all of this data and then I used it and it was ideal. And that's basically what is happening at the moment. Um, probably not quite so, uh, quite so widespread, but not far off. But all the pop-ups um, you always have on kind of on your Facebook feed or your, even your Google Mail pointing you to something that you, perhaps you searched three months ago, 
in a way. Right, and, and you know, we were, we were talking the other day um, about the fact that when you do those um, I am not a robot tests, we go, oh, that's a, that's a cat um, and that's a signpost. Um, what you're doing actually is helping um, the machine at the other end get better at that exact thing so it can then show that it isn't a robot. Weirdly, that's sort of what is happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, before you came on board, Andrew, with Ex Machina, how well versed were you in AI and its developments or you know, was it something that you came to um, from a fresh set of eyes? I'd read bits. I'd sort of I'd read The Emperor's New Mind yonks ago. And uh, I'd read bits of David Deutsch, um, people like that. So I, uh, some. Um, and then I, I read more sort of, uh, more of the kind of philosophical side. So sort of I read some, you know, Thomas Nagel, was it you know, mean to be a bat and things like that once I got on board. So I sort of had rudimentary knowledge of bits before I started. And then I have slightly more knowledge now. <laughs> it's like, it's much. Um, can I get a microphone here, please? Thank you. Magnificent film. The effects are absolutely amazing, really. Um, my question is, under, the, under your time constraints and budget constraints, did you get everything in, or did you drop? Had to drop anything? No. Well, effects? actually, the opposite. So w the original design for Ava, when we shot the film, um, the, all the back of the head and the neck was going to be made out of the same grey material as the, the shoulders. The, the reason being that for any close-ups, it would mean that the whole shot could be in camera, so there would be no visual effects. Um, and once we got into the edit and we knew we weren't going to need to do any additional photography. The sort of contingency fund that was put aside for that, we could spend on something else. So the decision was, well, why don't we do make the back of the head and the neck obviously robotic as well? Um, psychologically, because it means that you as an audience, every single time you see Ava, you are forced to confront the idea that she is a machine. Um, but so actually, in the end, we were able to get more than we originally thought we were going to um, because, well, because we, we planned well, <laughs> uh, which doesn't always happen. But uh, in, in this particular instance, we, we, did, we did well. Uh, and it was, that was just collective. Everybody you know, really uh, talked and collaborated. And that's the best way to get every penny on screen, which is what we tried to do. And how long did that process take? How long did the development uh, post production? Take? Oh, the, the development. Oh, the so I started on the film in the January, and we shot in, I think, May. So we had five months of pre-production where we designed Ava, and we needed to design her up front because um, you don't really see it in the finished cut, but uh, we 3D printed a whole Ava skeleton that's on a gurney in the back of the lab set. So we needed to design everything up front so that could actually be fabricated for the shoot. Um, and then the shoot was six weeks, and then post-production was about nine months. Small team, long time. Um, Thank you. I think what's kind of amazing about what you're saying with the confronting the viewer throughout with the fact that Ava is a robot mm. is it really skewers that um, kind of concept of the uncanny valley. Um, that thing of, oh, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So in, in Blade Runner, you know, and the original Blade Runner, Ridley Scott puts those sort of glint. occasional gold glint yeah. 
in the eye of the, of the replicants mm. that you probably don't notice, but subconsciously probably do, yeah. and, it, and it just so they feel slightly off. Yeah. Whereas with this, it's front and center. This is a machine, yeah. and now what are you? And now what do you think? Yeah. Um, and and, and uh, yeah, never never seen that um, done before. And I think it's absolutely fascinating and brilliant. In terms of when you're all watching the film as a viewer, do you see it from a particular which character's point of view? Do you most do you see it from the most? And I, do you think then you're being is that a different kind of manipulation in a way? I'm I'm very much Caleb. I think that's sort of the. That's kind of what it feels like. Like you're dropped into that situation, and like Michael says, he's running a test, but it kind of feels like you're running the mm. test with him yeah. and feeling equally confused <clears throat> um, and and unsure. It's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah, I'm Team Ava, Team Kyoko. Mm -hmm. oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think they're running a prison uh, <laughs> that these entities are trapped within, and for me, it's entirely about. Uh, how these two men are behaving appallingly towards uh, these entities um, and how they are choosing to react to that. Is mm. that because you spent so much time on the <coughs> creation? Do you think? I honestly can't answer that question. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's, I mean, even when, I don't know if that's true when I first read the screenplay because so much of that sense of imprisonment comes from the, uh, the, physical reality of the place, which yeah. when you're reading it off a page for the first time, you're not necessarily so aware of, I think. But certainly as soon as we were starting to get to the point of there being set designs and all of that kind of stuff, that's when it's like, yeah, this is a prison. You know, this is a prison and these two entities, which may or may not be conscious, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say they are, are against their will imprisoned in this place. And this is appalling. And this is again one of the issues which you have to think about with responsibilities towards general AI is if you make one, then you have to treat that in the same way as you would any other conscious mm. entity. And Nathan manifestly does not do that and Caleb is complicit in not allowing that. Did you design her in relationship to space then, in terms of her physical space? Yeah, but also, it, well, she, um, she's designed to be very mechanistic, um, so that you really get a sense of the, how the muscles move and all of the rest of it. Um, because we really wanted to say, Ava is our machine. Um, she's also, you can see through her, which is, again, a psychological uh, prompt so that the audience never thinks, well, you know, may, maybe Nathan is punking Caleb and it's a woman in a suit. Mm. Um, so you, you immediately puncture that as being a you know, thought process that you might go down. Um, and then also the, the, there, is a, there is an aesthetic concern of trying to design something which is entirely mechanistic, but which you can believe that a human might think that they are forming an emotional relationship to. And that's the hardest one. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely, she's definitely designed for the space and for the, the narrative. Thanks. Um, we've discussed whether Ava has consciousness. Um, would you say that she had personhood? And if so, is she a good person? Oh, wow. Um, 
Hmm. So, one of the interesting things, I guess, when you talk about what a general artificial intelligence might be like, um, I think often you, you think about the fact that that entity will not necessarily have an end, there's no sort of lifespan, and actually how significant an end is in a person's life and how much of our lives weirdly are informed by that, the fact that we have a finite period of time here and therefore a finite number of relationships and so on, and none of that really applies to a general artificial intelligence. There's no reason for it to... Well, when Ava's asked, yeah. like, you know, how old are you? And she says one. It's like, you know, one what? Yeah. One. Mm. And so she doesn't have any of the background stuff yeah. that makes you into a person. So I, I don't know. I think my take is probably she doesn't have yeah, personhood exactly. in the way that we would understand I, it. I would twist it slightly and say I think she aspires to personhood. Right. I think, I think she really wants to be, you know, she wants to go out and mix amongst people and watch people and learn from how mm -hmm. people are. Mm -hmm. And I think in that way she's probably more like, you know, maybe a five-year-old child or something. Mm. Um, and you could argue, and I've heard AI researchers argue that a five-year-old child isn't really a person. And, and that they actually, um, that this person said that they, they felt it, you know, you could argue that it wouldn't be, you know, murder in the same way to kill a young child as it is to kill an old, older child because you've got this sort of issue of, you know, when do they become a person? Um, it's weird. This is, that people this is not an advocate. Scientists are sometimes a bit creepy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, they're not uh, <laughs> always normal. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think Ava, you know, I, I see her worrying about her end. Which, and worrying about somebody else having control over her personhood and herself mm. and her existence. And I think, so even if you wouldn't necessarily ascribe her personhood mm. at this point, mm. I think she aspires mm. to it and, and would eventually reach it if she was allowed to go to that traffic intersection and, and sort of mix with more people. Yeah. It's that sense mm. of, is she aware, I'm sure she is aware of her imprisonment, but it's Kyoko that you see reacts to that imprisonment in a way, so is she more aware She's the one, obviously, is the one that's beating down the door to escape, and obviously, you see the arms come off. So you kind of think, is is that a heightened? That's not Kyoko, though. Oh, no, oh, that's sorry, a different no, approach. No, no, no. Yeah, different one, yeah. yeah. Um, but is that a heightened consciousness, even? I honestly don't know the answer mm -hmm. to that. I think it's. I mean, all of those moments are so grabbed within the film mm. that. You can't answer that question without knowing the sort of the life story of mm. that entity up until that point, mm. and you, you don't. So uh, I can't answer that question. I think frustration, though, is, yeah. is a really interesting mm. emotion for these things to be exhibiting. Mm. You know, frustration implies a sense of purpose and a goal, and, and that's the kind of thing that we would very much a, a associate with a conscious being. Mm. Got time for one, or we've got two. So we'll take these two. We'll take the gentleman here and then the gentleman at the back. I love the film as well. Thank you for this opportunity. And I, my question would be um, that we clearly see all the all the AIs exhibiting what we perceive to be as emotions. So for me, I I have this question about uh, why is it important to us whether they're conscious or not because we perceive them as being conscious. And I'm not sure what the difference between 
them exhibiting signs of consciousness versus having con uh, consciousnesses since I as a person don't really know whether anyone in this room has consciousness and I can never know for certain that's just one of the facts of human life. So uh, that's, I don't know if that's a really hard question to answer, it probably is, but I, that, that wouldn't be right. We've got three hours, yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All okay. right. Let's get all of the solipsists together. <laughs> <and> <laughs> I think fundamentally it just comes down to, you know, we all have a tacit agreement that we're all conscious, whether or not we can prove it. And, and from that, we then decide how we're going to relate to each other. And once you decide that somebody else is conscious or something else is conscious, then you change the way you relate to it. So, you know, we do this with animals all the time. We make implicit assumptions about how conscious they are and whether we're allowed to eat them or not, for instance. So I think, I think it's an important decision that we make. It's kind of an extraordinary thing as well that we do have a, uh, a kind of an implicit scale of consciousness, even though we can't define consciousness. As Michael says, you kind of you look at animals and you kind of go, it's like a five out of ten maybe. <laughs> um, and then you look and you get down to, uh, you know, a bee or an ant, and you're like, one out of ten is it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, and you will get to a point, I'm not sure exactly where that is, but you're like, no. Bacteria, no. <laughs> um, but and that's that's attributing something that we can't even define, mm -hmm. um, which means that yeah, your question is incredibly hard hard to answer because we're kind of dealing with a, a thing that we don't have a working definition of, um, even though we have a good sense of it, sort of feeling about it, um, which is why it's so hard to try and work out if you think Ava is conscious or not. Mm. And, and, and but your your point is. Does it matter if she's exhibiting all the signs of consciousness? And I guess maybe not. No. Yes, just a question at the back there. Just glad that someone's worn a tie. <laughs> Bit of respect right, uh, for the BAFTA. <laughs> thank, thank you very much for everything you've done tonight. Um, my question is uh, that the film goes to, to some length to paint Nathan as an, an unsavoury character and, by extension, ascribes most of the blame for Ava's situation to him. Uh, how do you think the messages and themes of the film would change if Nathan had just been uh, an unfortunate but uh, good-intentioned good person, perhaps? Well, to me, it's, it's an entire... It's a question of the imprisonment of this conscious mm -hmm. entity. So if he's well-intentioned, but he's still locking her up in a box, then I don't think that makes him any better. Um, if, we are, if we are assuming that Ava is conscious. So to me, that, that it, is, it is the one person having ownership or control of another conscious entity is, that's the moral crux of that part of the story for me. And whether it's you know, naive or unintentioned or very calculated, I don't think that matters that for me there's, there is um, something to consider though which is we're not quite sure because we don't really know what consciousness is whether it might just emerge so it could just emerge from um, an AI that is being that is being worked on um, and then you're in a situation where maybe it isn't embodied um, it's just you know it's just a computer um, 
but it but it becomes conscious and somehow we we decide that and you've got it in your in your lab and then what what do you do with it like do you let it sort of roam do you give it a body and say roam free um, there's a kind of there's, there's, a, there's a big question about what your responsibility is to both the consciousness yep. that you've maybe slightly unwittingly created and then the rest of the world. And what do you do with that thing that has just emerged? And I think that's it, our relationship with that question has kind of changed in the last few years, I would say, because whereas it used to be, you know, some researchers in the university labs sort of putting these things together and kind of playing around with it and wondering what comes out, um, now we're in a position where actually the best, or some of the best AI researchers in the world are, have been bought up by Google DeepMind or by Amazon mm -hmm. or by various other companies and are under sort of proprietary agreements where this thing, if it were to become mm -hmm. conscious, would actually be the property of a corporation. And, and that's a very different kind of situation yeah. we're dealing mm -hmm. with. That. Is it more mm -hmm. and more in the medical field yeah. as well, where kind of that's perhaps Take, not taking over the go-to in terms of it to kind of human contact. It's kind of a, seen as a more trustworthy alternative, mm. um, perhaps. Mm. But, the, but the notion that anyone can own another consciousness, mm. I mean, that's yeah. slavery. It's like, yeah. there's, there's no two yeah. ways about yeah. it. And it's like, that's, that's what we have to mm. confront. Yeah. Um, and that's not acceptable. <laughs> no. If we bring it back to Ex Machina and its ending, there's been, I think, debates and people have talked about different endings or picking kind of a separate segment of either ending it um, when he's in prison, ending it when she walks out, ending it when she, she's walking past the helicopter or at the point that it ends. If you had a preferred ending to the film, is it the one that we see, or is there another version? I, I would not criticise anything about this film. I've got to say, <laughs> I, I, I think it's I think it's pretty much perfect. I think the ending is in the right place. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I I love the kind of sense of ambiguity. I love the fact that all these years later we're still having a conversation about what it really means. I yeah. think it's done perfectly. Yeah, I'm contractually obliged to say that. I want to say that um, Rick and Michael have this fantastic book that comes out in a few days called Science-ish. It's a peculiar, peculiar science behind the movies, and they discuss some incredible films and could delve more into Ex Machina, but lots of other titles. So I think October the 5th? Is yes, October the 5th, yeah. yes. Um, I want to thank Andrew, Michael, and Rick, and thank you all for coming this evening. Thank you.